We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This pod will be talking, well, an epic MLS Cup, uh, U.S. men's national team roster drop eve. Brazil roster drop, Weird Al, Qatar food, Leeds America, and so much more. First joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, November 7th in the year 2022, if you can believe it? I am doing well. It's good to see you, but I can't touch you right now. I know. I know, my friend. We can't have everything in life. Uh, once again, I am on the road. I was in uh, Dallas, Texas, where the World Cup trophy makes its way to its, I think it's the 31st of the 32 countries. Uh, so the next couple of weeks, it will, I think, go to Saudi Arabia and then fi- finally finish off in uh, in Qatar. And there's a big tour and everything right down there. So we did some promotion. Uh, I was down there with, um, let's see, who was down there? El Matador, Luis Hernandez uh, of uh, El Tree fame. Uh, Ricky Kaká from uh, Brazil was down there, saw him. Uh, let's see, uh, our friend over there from ESPN, Taylor Twelman, was doing some emceeing, some hosting there. So it was fun to see uh, uh, see those guys. And, you know, we did some press and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But it meant that I couldn't get into the studio. But I'm here with you, my friend, both audio and visually, because you can still see me. I'm just uh, I did it right from LAX. I came right here to get this uh, show done. Uh, have you watched anything interesting, my friend? I am caught up on Andor, which continues to be great. Um, but I'm not going to be able to finish before I go off to Qatar. So that's going to be unfortunate. And uh, also, I am caught up on Atlanta. We are down to one more episode left, uh, which airs this Thursday. I can't wait. The final episode of what's been one of the best shows on TV the last few years. But I mean, it's not the wire level, though, right? Or, or, or Game of Thrones level, but it's still one of the best, right? For you? Yeah, totally different. It's a half okay. hour kind of dark comedy kind of thing, but uh, okay. brilliant. Um, I, you know, usually we talk about things that we like, not all the time, because sometimes it's important, you know, to get the information out there. And once, once again, just one man's opinion here. But I watched the uh, new Weird Al Yankovic 
Um, it's kind of a bio pick, but it really isn't because most of it is a parody of what a biopic would be. It's horrible, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Again, um, there must might be people that like him. Now, am I a huge Weird Al fan? No, but he is uh, iconic, especially for someone from the 80s. Um, with his parody music and undeniable talent and that he has parlayed this into not just a career, but an iconic career is amazing. And I thought I was going to get a little bit more of who this guy actually was and what it ended up turning into was just a complete waste of time. Um, and, and wasn't, if it was trying to be a parody, then it didn't succeed and it wasn't funny. If it was trying to be a bio op, um, Doc, it was it wasn't even close. It wasn't even in the, you know, the Queen or the Elton John uh, genre or anything like that. And, you know, those are some of the recent things that we hold up. So you should avoid it. I think Daniel Radcliffe plays Weird Al. He does a fine job. It was just a mess from the start Uh, and ill. Well, not ill conceived. The conception was okay, but the execution was uh, was not good. And I think you can actually watch it for free now on uh, on Roku. So two thumbs down from this guy over here on the Weird Al. Uh, movie. Uh, Mossy, you uh, really like this candle? Let's do it. All right. Well, listen, uh, we, we're certainly not going to bury the league. We are coming to you, as I mentioned, on Monday. On Saturday, it has to be said, Mossy, we saw something incredible. A game for the ages. In my estimation, the best MLS Cup ever. Uh, my friend John Strong immediately took that when I said that right before we went into uh extra time and penalties, he said that he argues it's, you know, arguably the best MLS game ever. I don't know about that, but absolutely, I certainly could take that side. First off, just in general, Mossy, were you as amazed as so many people, including myself, were at the epic nature of this game? It will go into a time capsule for the back and forth. It had absolutely everything that you want from a game. The drama, the like I said, the back and forth, you know, uh, not that you want horrible injuries, but it had that type of drama with horrible injuries, red cards. Uh, stars coming into the game, all of this kind of stuff. This lived up to not only billing, but I think it's going to live long in the memories of MLS fans and soccer fans alike because it was on Big Fox, and I think a lot of people tuned in either not either either in the beginning or as it went on and gained momentum through the course of the two and a half hours. Yeah, people tuning in for the World Series pregame show suddenly uh, got to watch <laughs> something pretty extraordinary. And, you know, LAFC and Philadelphia were involved in one of the great regular season games in MLS history, a 3-3 at Bank of California in March of 2020, the last game before the COVID shutdown. And now they're involved in what I agree with you was the greatest MLS Cup ever. Um, and, yeah, the amazing thing about it was that the start of the game was actually subdued. I thought the first 25, mm-hmm. 30 minutes or so there wasn't that much going on. It really got going late in the first half and then carried over into the second half and the extra time. And yeah, by the end, everybody was just exhausted because it was incredibly draining. It was thrilling. It was entertaining. It was exciting uh, and absolutely lived up to the billing. Incredible. And, you know, look, <laughs> Gareth Bale, who let's say he hasn't quite made made the dramatic impact that many were envisioning when he came over. And yet, as he has done in the past, 
He comes seemingly out of nowhere and not only plays a part, but almost cements himself, even if he doesn't do anything else in LAFC folklore with the goal. At the time, uh, keep in mind that LAFC were down a man. I mean, it was as Hollywood as you could uh, as you could possibly get. To your point, first half wasn't wasn't great. Uh, this was a set piece orgy, and I actually used that in the broadcast, and that was a callback to a long time ago. So as as new generations of, of fans come into the league, it's okay to go back and dip back into the well. And so I brought that one uh, that one up, and it was because the set pieces were going back and forth. And the interesting thing is both of these teams actually were pretty good at set pieces in terms of letting them in, and they just seem to have forgotten how to uh, uh, how, how to mark. Um, you know, in the back, uh, Elliot, you know, a big center back coming in and and making me feel so good as a, a center back coming up for those big plays, uh, scoring uh, scoring goals. Um, the interesting thing also was, I mean, it was a ballsy move, Mossy, to take out Carlos Vela and to put in. Gareth Bale, given what Gareth Bale has been. And we judge uh, coaches on the changes that they make during the game and the effect that those changes have. And Steve Cherundolo, he got it completely right in this moment. Yeah, it was, you know, a little divine intervention, but he put on a player that ultimately scored a huge, huge goal that enabled them ultimately uh, to get to the penalties. And we'll talk about the penalties in a second. Yeah, it was interesting. As he was bringing other players on like Apoku and not Gareth Bale, you started to think, oh my God, the story here is going to be that Bale has sunk to such a degree that uh, Trunlo didn't even want to put him on in this situation. But then he puts him on. And listen, we, we've said it on this podcast, the longer LAFC stayed alive in these playoffs, there was a chance for Bale to have a moment and to change this narrative around. And he did. Say what you want about him, but that guy does have a flair for the dramatic and, you know, if you spin it forward to November 21st, that's why he's a scary player to go up against if you're the U.S. national team. When we debated which European team you wanted out of that playoff bracket, I think we all agreed that Ukraine objectively was the best team. So you're fortunate to not have to face them also because of the sentimental factor that you kept bringing up. But I always whenever we brought up Wales, I, I would always say not that great a team. But you do have to deal with one of the world's great clutch performers who it's going to be Wales's first World Cup match in 64 years, a big occasion, the type of occasion that Gareth Bale does have a habit of coming through. And so exciting to watch him do that in the MLS Cup. But you start thinking about the World Cup and it is a little bit scary for U.S. fans. It is. And he does rise to the occasion. Um, I, I don't know what the future holds, but this in and of itself is, like I said, enough to justify his time at uh, at LAFC. Now, on the other side, Philadelphia it wasn't a great day for Philadelphia when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to sports. Um, and they have no one but themselves to blame. It was in the palm of their hand and they let it get away. And I think that Jim Curtin and company will look back on this and you know, sometimes you just take your hat off and say, you know what, uh, the other team was uh, was better than us. I don't think that Jim Curtin would or should say that because that wasn't necessarily the case for much for much of the game. And as we said, they were uh, they were up. Now the drama only continued into the penalties, right? Uh, with Crapo, uh, with uh, Crapo, uh, you know, breaking his leg. 
And listen, um, a little peek behind the curtain for those who are watching on television. You know, there's always this debate when there is a horrific injury. And this was a horrific injury on do you show it, don't you show it? And we made it an executive decision from a Fox perspective, obviously not to show it. And yes, you know, we are there to document the game, both good and bad. And I'm sure people have different takes on whether that was the right call, uh, right call or not. I think in the moment, people understood that. Yes, we are there to document it, but this was something that was beyond the pale and wasn't wasn't necessary. It was almost gratuitous. And look, I'm I, I'm just as curious as anybody else in that moment, and so I get that human uh, that human reaction. But we all know ultimately that uh, you know broke his leg, was taken off, and it was very very clear that this was a serious injury and that he certainly wasn't going to be able to continue. And so John McCarthy comes in. This is a former Philadelphia Union player who actually had been pretty good in the past and had been put in at times to, uh, you know, to stop penalties. And we had asked John Thurrington before if in the back of his mind he was even thinking about this. And obviously his hand was forced in this moment. Well, the kid comes in and <laughs> just stones uh, Philadelphia and does kind of what I guess Philadelphia had feared and what Steve Cherundolo had hoped. And I'll tell you what, man, that that. That changed everything there, so much so that everybody's running around. The stories were written. They had to be changed. The MVP had been decided. It had to be changed. And this kid comes in, is the hero, gets the first ever LAFC, and probably the first of many going forward, LAFC MLS Cups, checks that box for this team that has been great but has yet to do that. And in doing so, be, talk about becoming a hero and one that will be talked about for for the ages because of that. If he, even if he doesn't do anything else, uh, that was fun to see in that moment. Yeah, on Philadelphia first, uh, this is an all-time gut punch. That's as close as you can come to winning a championship without winning it. As you mentioned, they were already notifying media people on the sidelines that Jack Elliott was the MVP and get ready for the Philadelphia trophy presentation. I was putting Philadelphia in my post-game scripts for Rodolfo. You know, what it made me think of was the famous example is the 86 World Series. Uh, 10th inning of Game 6, the Red Sox had a two-run lead, two outs, nobody on. And the Shea Stadium operator was typing out a message, congratulations, Boston Red Sox World Champs, and accidentally pressed a button where it showed up on the scoreboard for a split second and then quickly took it down again. But, you know, when you already have that sense of inevitability right. that something's going to happen, and then when it doesn't, I mean, it's just incredible. So, yeah, I mean... My heart goes out to Jim Curtin and those players. I don't know what that locker room must have been like afterwards, but that was brutal. And and look, the environment was everything that we talked about. Even though the first half wasn't great, still the environment there was awesome. And look, I, I am a neutral. I know that Philadelphia or, or, or Seattle fans or everybody thinks that thinks that I hate them uh, or they root against them. I am an equal opportunity hater if I am indeed a hater. So everybody gets the criticism at, diff at different times. Having said that, the... The home team winning in that type of atmosphere, it just kind of was the the, the cherry on top to an incredible moment. Now that's not going to, you know, be any condolence to uh, to anybody from Philadelphia or Jim Curtin or any of the players, or anything like that. I'm just talking again from a neutral perspective. It was just tied up in a nice bow at the end. The home team, everybody screaming and yelling, running on the field, uh, people going, uh, people going nuts, and it was a great advertisement, not just for MLS Cup, but for both of these teams, and obviously for the league. And at a moment where we know the future is kind of unsure with the Apple deal and what's going on over there, it was a wonderful 
I think it was a wonderful way to kind of put a put a closure on this first 27 years of Major League Soccer. And who knows what's uh, what's going to happen going forward. I have had the privilege and pleasure of now working for many of these MLS Cups, and I cannot think of uh, of a better one. And if this is ultimately the last one that that me that I do for the time being, uh, or that we do as from a Fox perspective, what a, that is a hell of a way to go out. Now, Mossy, see if this if if this tracks with you. There is a part of me, though, when it comes to being neutral, that is kind of happy that it was the team that spends money because I'm told on a consistent basis. MLS's restrictions and MLS's requirements when it comes to spending and what you can and cannot do hold the teams and hold the league back. And so when you have a team that does spend more relative to a team that spends less and it's this, you know, we've talked about before, this money ball type of situation from Philadelphia, I am going to side on the team that spends more money in terms of being better for the league ultimately to have that success. Am I am I off base with that warped type of thinking that some would uh, see it as? No, I get it in an MLS context. Most people generally prefer teams that develop their own players and and are able to be smarter with money and don't just throw crazy money around and buy established stars. You generally zig where other people zag on that. You like the big yeah. bad stars and but I think in an MLS context, uh, it that take actually is defensible because you know People do want uh, this league to be more ambitious and to loosen up the purse strings and to encourage teams to spend more. So, yeah, perhaps LAFC okay. being right. successful, well, I think. I mean, I want to just make sure that I'm being fair. And, and you're a you're a wonderful, uh, you know, uh, source to bounce things off of. Because, you know, at times I might be unfair. Might, at times I might be out of line. It doesn't stop me from having the opinions and doesn't stop me and you at times from disagreeing there. So I just wanted to to get that in as we, again, kind of turn this corner into a new era of Major League Soccer. All right, well, speaking of putting a bow, I think that's obviously putting a bow on MLS Cup on another really, really interesting Major League Soccer uh, season. The next one is right around the corner. Obviously, it'll happen after the World Cup. We have now turned a lot of our attention uh, to the World Cup. Are you ready to leave that one uh, and move on to some other stuff, Mossy? Sure. All right, where do you want to go from here? Well, this is our last podcast before the U.S. World Cup roster drops. We're going to do a podcast on Wednesday reacting to the roster. Um, so uh, this is your last chance here to get some thoughts in. And I should mention, Greg Berhalter has reportedly started informing players whether they made it or not. And so some of that information is leaking. There are widespread reports that Tim Ream has made this squad, that he's one of the four center backs. Keep in mind, uh, the news in the last few days is that it wasn't going to happen for Chris Richards. Patrick Vieta came out and said, yeah, right. he's not even that close. So most people came around to the notion, yeah, Chris Richards is not an option here. So it sounds like it's going to be Tim Ream who's going to take that place. It's going to be Zimmerman, Long, Carter Vickers, and Ream. Uh, we're not sure if that's 100% true, but if it is, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, well, I think that this is directly related to Chris Richards. And look, we're, we're going to talk a whole lot more with Stu Holden uh, when we dissect the 26-man roster. And I, I do think that there are going to be surprises no matter what. There's going to be arguments no matter what. Uh, I think this is relative to Chris Richards, who just obviously cannot go. And this is also, you know, if this ends up being true, and again, these are all rumors that we're just speculating right now. And, and like I said, I don't want to go too deep into it, but I, I, I do think that if this happens, um, people are going to look at Greg Berhalter in a different way because we've talked about him being a true believer. We've talked about him 
um, being a romantic in what he does and kind of digging in his heels to to his guys. And I, I still think when the when the roster is announced, and I don't have any inside information that there are going to be surprises, but there are also going to be some things that do play to that romantic notion of uh, of Greg Berhalter. Um all right. Anyway, we are going to we are going to do uh, to do that. Uh, so we will we will table that for now. But definitely tune in because I know Stu is all fired up for whatever this uh, this is. As is much of the uh, American soccer community out there, because we are at a point where there are actual debates and there are arguments and there are disagreements as to who that twenty six should be. And Greg Berhalter has had this entire cycle now to figure out what it is. And to your point, stuff is going to continue. Continue to leak because you kind of have to tell the players. And I'm going to talk a little bit about when I was informed as a national team player in my one for the road uh, later on. But um, you know, we're going to get to Brazil here in a second. Uh, you have to recognize, especially when it comes to a lot of these players that have been through an entire cycle, that this is a crucial moment. And how you handle it as a national team coach, and by the way, how you handle it as a player is going to go a long way into you know your reputation and how you view the coach, how the coach views you going on. And while this is the be-all and end-all in terms of a player's mind right now, there is a future after the 2022 World Cup. And uh, this is not necessarily the end of the road for some players. Some players, this will be it. So we'll find out, uh, as we said on Wednesday, when uh, Greg Berhalter announces that it's going to be on ESPN and we will immediately have a reaction to that with myself, Mossy, and uh, Stu Holden as a special guest on a special State of the Union. Uh, where should we go now, Mossy? Uh, are we moving on from the U.S. roster? I don't know. I mean, I thought <laughs> we we're going to table that for the actual show. Well, just to give uh, some injury updates, uh, Matt okay. Turner was on the bench for Arsenal this past weekend, so it sounds like he's fine. So we both think Turner, Stefan, and Johnson will be the three yeah. there. Josh Sargent started for Norwich, so no issues there. Uh, we know at striker Ferreira's deal, he hasn't played since Dallas got knocked out of the MLS playoffs. Uh, Pepe got a somewhat fortuitous assist this past weekend for Groningen in their loss to Utrecht. Um, Haji Wright, I don't know if you consider him still in the mix, but he scored again for Antalya Spor. Um, PFOC, I'll say for the next segment when we do our little European weekend review. But so uh, we'll see. I mean, the debates are the same ones we've been having. You know, does PFOC get in there? Or does he take four center forwards? If not, does PFOC bump out a Pepe or a Sergeant? So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's PFOC, it's Ream. Um, you know, to a certain extent, it's even guys that are, I think, are uh, are going to be there and people not being happy with that, you know, i.e., you know, an Aaron Long or a... Um, a Jordan Morris or other. And I'm not saying that Jordan Morris is going to be there, but you know, someone, someone like that, like I said, there are going to be people no matter what that are happy. And there are going to be people that are angry and look, we will have that conversation and that's a good, healthy conversation to have even with the anger. But then there comes a point where you kind of have to move on. And these are the ones that we're dancing with. Okay. And either you're supportive of them or you're not. And if it's constantly going to be this, look back and well, why didn't you bring this guy or why didn't you bring this guy or this guy did this and this guy would have done that. It's going to get old really, really quick. And again, it's not blind faith and it doesn't mean that context isn't important. And it also doesn't mean that Greg Berhalter is not going to be judged ultimately on these decisions uh, that you make. But to a certain extent, from a Greg Berhalter perspective, you're either with us or you're against us. All right. Anything else, Mossy? 
No, so on the topic of uh, World Cup squads, uh, Brazil named theirs today, and uh, Sean Sullivan has indulged me by including that in the rundown. So uh, evidently, he wants me to share some of my thoughts on uh, my beloved Brazil's well, World well, Cup I squad. Do, well, I do too, because this was the first kind of big drop and big moment. And let's be honest. They're, they're my pick to win it. There are a lot of people's pick to win it. And they have a wealth of talent. And so, yes, there are the usual suspects there. But this also afforded us an opportunity to get a peek uh, into what Brazil is going to look like, but also to see that even this Brazil, that it, uh, the Brazil that we always talk about, even this Brazil, how much it means to these players and how much competition there ultimately is for places on this 26-man roster. And listen, I am pleased with this squad. I think anybody that actually followed this team, um, you couldn't have been surprised by anything today and you couldn't have been that angry about anything today. Everybody that has to be there is there. On the margins, there were a couple of could-go-either-way decisions that maybe you can debate. But if you find anybody on Twitter that's ranting and raving about the squad, it means one of two things. You're either a non-Brazilian who doesn't follow the team and parachutes in World Cup time, dropping opinions based entirely on players' club form. If you see somebody say, like, why is Richarlison there? He's only scored X amount of goals for Tottenham this season. Well, Richarlison has scored seven goals in Brazil's last six games. He is the second leading scorer in this cycle, one behind Neymar. And if you take out penalties, he's actually the leading scorer in this cycle. No Brazilian woke up this morning wondering if Richarlison was going to be in the squad. So if that jumped out to you as a surprise, then that's a giveaway that you probably don't have a great feel for the team. The second type of person is, I've told you this before, Brazil is a proud footballing nation. There are a lot of journalists in Brazil. They can't stomach the fact that the national team is comprised almost entirely of European-based players, that doing well in Europe carries more weight than doing well in Brazil. And Gabigol has become a flashpoint in that debate with everything he's done in Brazilian football the last four years. And so Gabigol not being in this squad is considered a slap in the face to Brazilian domestic football. So some people are ranting and raving about that. I don't have an issue with it. He got his chances from June 21 to November 21. He started eight games for Brazil. And to me, it became apparent that he's one of those big fish in a small pond type of players that when he steps up in class against elite world-class opposition, the stuff he does at Flamengo doesn't translate. So I'm not a big Gabigol fan. I'm perfectly fine with him being left out of the squad. Um, so I, like I said, I, you know, there are a couple of things we can debate here, but overall I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with this. Well, what I hear you saying is kind of affirming my, uh, my formus fallacy concept in that, you know, it's, it, it can, if you put so much emphasis on the club situation or Charleston or something like that, then it can skew your, um, your view of a player or if the player's playing well, but not necessarily playing well with the uh, the national team, then you're not you're not going to bring them. I mean, look, this is an embarrassment of riches, no matter what. And certainly, relative to what we are talking about from a U.S. perspective, there are plenty of uh, of players out there that could have that could have been on this team. I am not going to sit here and lament or cry for Chichi or, or or any Brazilians out there in terms of who is or isn't on this uh, on this roster. But my friend, that you are. That you are happy and that you are bullish in terms of the roster drop, I think that that bodes well for this team going into this uh, this World Cup. And it's not that you can't have some different disagreements out there, but in totality, I think you're looking at this absolutely as a team living up to my lofty expectations and many people's out there when it comes to potentially winning this World Cup. 
Yeah, let me address two things and then we'll move on that people have been asking me about on Twitter. Uh, Danny Alves, he's 39. Mm -hmm. He'll be the oldest player ever to play for Brazil at a World Cup. Uh, the issue is Brazil is very weak at right back right now. So it, it was never a question of taking another right back over him. The question was whether you take Danny Alves or you only take one right back, Danilo, and use that spot somewhere else. And when you started thinking about where that other spot would go, it would go to either like a fifth center back or a 10th forward. And that just felt like overkill. And it would essentially be a waste of a spot. So Danny Alves, I think, is more useful than what the alternatives would have been, uh, just based on his leadership, his experience. And also, he's still a good attacking option to have uh, on the bench. If you're losing a game in the second half, that's a change you can make. Take out Danilo, put in Danny Alves, and he's still a player that might be able to drop a pinpoint cross at a striker's head and create a goal out of nothing. So I think that alone in a squad of 26 makes him a more useful player than, like I said, a fifth center back or a 10th forward who's never going to get on the field. So I'm OK with it. But uh, look, not, notwithstanding his incredible pedigree when it comes to the national team, this is the ultimate test of form is fallacy, right? Because it has not gone well for him in Mexico right now. And so you're really basing this selection on what he once was and what you believe that he can reignite. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's okay. fair. Um, and the okay. other issue is Firmino not being on there. What happened there is uh, Rodrigo is a very versatile player who could either have been out on the wing as a backup to Vinicius or more centrally as the backup to Neymar in that support striker slash number 10 role. So where Chichi slotted him in was going to dictate whether the last attacking spot was going to be a winger or a, or more of a striker. And Chichi ended up placing Rodrigo centrally as the backup to Neymar and used that last spot on Martinelli. He could have done it the other way. He could have put Rodrigo out on the left wing, backing up Vinicius, and then called up Firmino to be the backup to Neymar. That, that was a tough one. I've wrestled with that one the last few weeks. Again, it's one you could have gone either way. Tim Vickery wrote a column about it today. He questioned Chichi's decision a little bit. And I, I'm not I'm not saying Tim is wrong, but I, to me, that's like a 50-50 you could have gone either way. That's the one real debate I'm having in my head right now. But again, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that's going to win us or lose us the World Cup. Everybody that absolutely has to be there is there. And I feel good about the squad and uh, ready to go. All right. Well, um, let me ask you one question before we go here. If there's one player that you would take that is not on this roster, who would it be? You mean a, a player that was left out that I, yes. I really wish was back in? I'm telling you, there's not a glaring... Okay, okay, that's know. that's that, that's fair enough. I mean, listen, uh, these rosters are going to continue to drop, and this type of conversation is, is wonderful to have. And obviously, when you're talking about the elites, as Brazil is and others are, there are, there are some really, really good players that aren't going to get the opportunity to go uh, to the World Cup, which, by the way, starts in less than uh, than two weeks from this, uh, from this taping. Uh, all right, Mossy, uh, did you get enough Brazil out of your system there? Yep. All right, well, let's take a, a quick break. And when we come back, we will recap all the action around the globe because there's still plenty of action going on when it comes to the, uh, the club game. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all... It's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay, welcome back. And uh, let's take a trip around the world here. There's all sorts of stuff that is going on. Where do you want to start, my friend? You want to start over there in uh, jolly old England? 
I think we have to begin with America's team, Leeds yeah. United, with a rousing come from behind win over Bournemouth. They're down 3 1 in the second half, score three unanswered. Somerville, who was the hero at Anfield again, scores the winner set up by the Italian kid, Nyonto, who I thought had a really nice impact after coming on in the second half. So 4 3 final, Ellen Road going nuts. Back to back wins for Jesse Marsh. I think he is back in business over there. He is. And you, and you see how quickly it looks from a table perspective now being kind of a, a mid table. I mean, we talked about this before that this was a potential trap game. And there was a point there, Mossy, as, as we all saw, where it was, oh, no, it's going to be one step up in terms of the Liverpool and two steps back in terms of uh, this result. And yet. Ultimately, they found a way. Now, is this sustainable? Because from a, well, from an American perspective, it's great, okay? From an actual soccer purist perspective, um, it's, and maybe from a coach's perspective, including Jesse Marsh, while he likes the results, I'm not sure this is the type of way that he necessarily wants these results to come. And he's the first person to tell you that at some point, that well is going to run dry. Defensively, I still think, and 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 it shows in the uh, in the amount of goals that they're giving up, that they have liabilities that they have to shore up. They can't constantly rely on this incredible cardiac return of their team, uh, and so that has to be you know put down. They have a, a difficult schedule coming up, as we all know. Everybody's playing one more game here before the uh, uh, before they have to head off uh, to the World Cup. Tyler Adams, you know, Brendan Aronson came on really, really strong at the beginning of this uh, this season. And I think it's just natural because his is much more of a visible type of way of playing that that garners accolades. And Tyler is much more understated. Uh, but I think people are starting to grow and appreciate the amount of space that he covers, the passing channels that he gets to, and just his importance in shutting things down for the opposition against, as we said, a team that is not necessarily great defensively when you go into that uh, that back line. So I think he is coming out as as is Brendan Aronson, but I think it's really kind of emerging. Oh my goodness, we have somebody really, really good here in Tyler Adams. So for Jesse Marsh, for the Americans there, this was a huge, huge game. It was full of emotion. It was full of passion. I think Jesse probably just wants a nice, comfortable win at some point where it was never in doubt. I'm not sure he's going to get it right now, but the, the narrative that existed two weeks ago has completely been flipped on its head in terms of him, uh, him going. Still a long season to go, but Really, really good in terms of what he is able to come back and do over the last couple of weeks. Also on Saturday, Manchester City played host to Fulham. I built this up as Erlen Holland against Tim Ream. Holland actually didn't start. Julian Alvarez did and scored a beautiful goal. City was up 1-0. They looked to be cruising. And then João Cancelo commits a penalty and gets sent off. Andreas Pereira equalizes. They brought Holland on in the second half. He had a goal ruled out. And then in stoppage time, Anthony Robinson takes down Kevin De Bruyne. Penalty. Holland converts. 2-1 City final. Yeah, but they're playing in the EPL, Mossy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, we're going we're to talk much more about Ream, and we already already did that. Uh, they're playing, and they're playing against arguably the best team in the world. Okay, when I say they, I mean uh, Tim Ream and and Robinson there, uh, especially as it relates to the to the national team. No shame, certainly, in any team, especially a team like Fulham, Fulham going to City and and losing uh, to Silly City. But you know, 
they they held their own. And so that in and of itself can be, you know, a kind of moral victory. Not that anybody likes a moral victory, but there are games that Fulham are supposed to win. And there are games like this where they are not supposed to win and they didn't win. And it's no no skin off uh, theirs in terms of what they are doing. This will not change anything in terms of the assessment of what Fulham is and isn't or what Tim Ream is or isn't going forward. I was talking to my dad and he was marveling at the fact that even a man down city had like 80% possession. Right. You know, it begs the question, how many city players would you have had to have taken off the field for Fulham to be the team on the front foot? <laughs> right. At, at what point does city sit back and go into a defensive shell and bunker and park the bus? <laughs> the thought. <laughs> All right. What else uh, happened out there, Mossy? So that city result put the pressure on Arsenal on Sunday and they responded Went to Stanford Bridge, completely bossed the game. Uh, they pick up a 1-0 victory, which was more lopsided than, than the score. Uh, the lone goal, Bukayo Saka took a corner that somehow got through everybody and was going to go in for an Olympico, but Gabriel Magallanes didn't want to take any chances and pounced on it. Uh, so, yeah, nice victory for Arsenal. Pulisic came on late, barely touched the ball. Uh, I'll tell you, Graham Potter, when he first took over, they ripped off some victories and... U.S. fans were reveling in that because it supported their anti-Tuchel narrative. But I never thought the football was improving that much. And now it's caught up with them. No wins in the last four Premier League games. Uh, Chelsea wobbly again. I, I don't think they've playing playing very well right now. Yeah. And look, from a Pulisic standpoint, it doesn't necessarily change his you know, his outlook, even though they thought you know, we, we all thought maybe there was a possibility of a uh, of a new beginning. Um but I think Potter quickly realized what Christian Pulisic is. And so I think this only hastens, you know, the possibility of a move uh, even come come January. He th that he's not playing a big part. OK, in and of itself is nothing new, but he's not playing in a big part right now where they are not winning. And so it's almost kind of <laughs> he gets to wash his hands. And, they, you know, the parts that he are that he is playing, he's coming in and getting a few minutes here, here or there. So nothing has changed for him. If it's giving him a rest so he can be his best best version of himself uh, come that Wales game here in a few short weeks. That's uh, that's OK with me, because everything when it comes to Christian Pulisic right now, the way I think of it isn't relative to Chelsea. It's completely relative to the U.S. men's national team and what he's doing at Chelsea. How does it helped the U.S. men's national team. I was going to say, it would have been great if he had had a fantastic last few months, emerged as one of Chelsea's best players and went into this World Cup flying, but that ship has sailed. And now we're close enough to the World Cup that I actually agree with being happier he's not playing because that means he can't get injured. I mean, we're now close right. enough to it that where the mentality shifts a little bit. This was the least upset U.S. Twitter seemed to be over him not starting a game. So, uh, and we're seeing, and we're seeing these, and by the way, about the, these injuries, and I, I don't know if I mentioned it last show, but there are plenty of these injuries that would have kept players out in a normal circumstance. So just kind of saying, well, the, the World Cup's in November, December, and everybody's getting hurt. That, that doesn't quite always work out in terms of this narrative. Now, is there, is there a shorter period from the last game to the time that they're playing the World Cup? Yes. But also, and it goes back to what I said before, that, all of these players, whether they're Christian Pulisic who's not playing a lot or anybody that even is playing week in and week out, it's nothing relative to when they show up at a World Cup after playing an entire year of club and the best players in the world are playing club. They're going deep into the international tournaments that they, that they are, friendlies, all the different stuff that, that is going on. So I don't think there should be any excuse in terms of players' fitness and players' health when it comes to this World Cup. All right. What else, Masi? 
Uh, Aston Villa in Unai Emery's first game in charge beat Manchester United 3-1. Bailey, Dina, and Ramsey with the goals. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo started up front, was ineffective. So this halts some of United's recent momentum. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Unai Emery, right? I mean, he, <laughs> there was a time. We've been around now. We've seen these cycles of Unai Emery and getting introduced and all the fanfare and all of the, uh, you know, the belief. And, you know, then it kind of peters out. And this is a great kind of stamp of I'm back. This is this is who I am. Now that it's coming against Manchester United, I think you'll have to kind of qualify it still because of, of what they are. But still a result that Unai will take, that the Villa folks will uh, will take. And on the other side, to your point, it, it does kind of show Manchester United is certainly not out of the problems that they have. And some of them may even be rearing their uh, their head again. But that Cristiano is on the field from a from a Portugal perspective, I guess that's a good thing. You know, maybe the way that we are looking at it, at, at Christian or others out there that are just kind of in there, they're not getting hurt, even though their teams aren't playing well or they're necessarily winning. Again, all eyes, including Cristiano's, uh, are going to be focused on what's happening here in a couple weeks. I did hear some English pundits say that Unai Emery was an underwhelming appointment for Aston Villa. This is a guy who was in the semifinals of the Champions League last season. He's won four Europa League titles. He recently managed Arsenal and PSG. If he's an underwhelming appointment for Aston Villa, then... I mean, do they want like Zinedine Zidane? I mean, who do they think is going to go to a club like that? But, so, so why didn't it work out at Arsenal? Well, I would argue the first season was better than he's given credit for. It really kind of fell apart in that second season. And, you know, we talked about this then. I, I do think the language barrier was an issue for him. He tried mm -hmm. to communicate in English and he was just very bad at it. And uh, we'll see how that goes this time around. But, uh, but I know, I, I think he's a good coach. Um, I don't think he's coming back with any major leaps in terms of his grasp <laughs> of the English language. So I don't think that that is necessary. So if that's a problem, I think it's an, a, a continual problem. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't matter what language you speak as long as you're getting wins uh, wins like this. Uh, other games, anything else uh, before uh, we move on? Last one in England, Liverpool with a nice win, 2-1 away to Tottenham. Mo Salah scored uh, twice in the first half. Harry Kane pulled one back in the second half. Uh, Tottenham had a bit of a flurry late. The ball was pinging around the Liverpool box, but they couldn't get the equalizer. So Liverpool recently have beaten City, Napoli, and Tottenham and lost to Nottingham Forest and Leeds. So figure that one out. And and Tottenham, you know, uh, I've been disappointed with them this season, but I will say the results are fine. They won their Champions League group. They're in the top four. So you could spin that positive and say they're not even playing that well and they are where they are. So if they play up to their potential later on this season, they'll, they'll be okay. And and it seems also some from reports that Son is going to be okay and maybe give it a go when it comes to uh, the national team in the, in the in the World Cup for South Korea, which is which is good news from our perspective, from a World Cup perspective. And you know we know with that facial type of thing, who knows? Maybe he'll be all masked up going forward. But at least that sounds like positive good news for him uh, making a recovery from that orbital problem that he had. In uh, Germany, Dortmund, 3-0 winners over Eric Winalda's former club, Bochum. Uh, Mukoku, who is a wonderful talent, scored twice. And the other goal, Gio Reyna from the penalty spot. Nice to see Gio starting, playing well. Look, I mean, uh, that he is now playing consistently, and more importantly, that he's healthy. <laughs> you know? I saw Claudio Reyna in, uh, in Dallas, and uh, you know he's a, he's a proud papa. 
Uh, and it's amazing to me that I'm about to work a World Cup and one of the players on the field is a, a son of a player that I played with uh, and against uh, growing up. It's just an amazing, it's amazing how that, uh, how that works. And he's a great player and we all know about his injury history. And so I'm glad that, you know, he got to put the ball in the back of the net, albeit from uh, from the penalty spot. But I'm more more excited about the fact that he is going to give Greg Berhalter the best of problems if this continues on. And he comes into this, I guess we would call a mini camp before the World Cup and doesn't miss a beat and is training every single day and doesn't have any problems and no lingering, lingering problems from anything that uh, uh, that he has. So this is this is good for him and this is good for the U.S. And this is obviously good for Dortmund because they have a lot of hopes riding on him going forward to after the World Cup. And this was finally the weekend in which Bayern surged to the top of the table. They beat Hertha Berlin 3-2. to two. Uh, Chupo Moting with two of the goals. He'll be at the World Cup for Cameroon. He's flying, man. He is yeah. flying right now. Absolutely. Uh, Alfonso Davies picked up an injury in this game, which had Canadian hearts dropping. But Nagelsmann has already come out and said that uh, Davies should be fine for the World Cup. So that's obviously great news there. Yeah, everyone held their breath when they saw him coming off, and he was, you know, holding the thing and the whole uh, the whole theater of it, and you know, and again, the wheels are turning, and you're thinking about it, and sometimes it's you make it worse than it actually is, and you're being cautious and doing all those things. So uh, it, it's still it's a hamstring injury for a guy that relies on speed, and so I will believe it when I see it. I don't I don't want him not to play, but. You know, this this is not, you know, this is not just something that he can kind of uh, work through. And God forbid he gets on the field and he came back too fast or he strains it. He strains it again. So we'll hope hope that it was that it was nothing. And the reason Bayern are in first place, Union Berlin got drilled by Leverkusen 5-0. PFOX started, uh, struggled. (laughs) That's now zero goals in nine games, one in the last 13. Union Berlin actually dropped a third. Freiburg overtook them as well. So not good times there. Well, I mean, you know, they they were living good times, right? And they were living, you know, high on the hog. And and it's, you know, it, it reverts to the mean, right? This is ultimately where Union Berlin was expected to be maybe not maybe not getting five nothing losses and everything like that but at some point that the, you know the tide was expected to turn for them and the opposite way like you mentioned with uh uh, uh with with Bayern Munich that now sit in the very familiar place at the top of the league uh in Spain Barcelona are your new La Liga leaders uh they beat Almeria 2-0 at home this weekend. Uh, Lewandowski actually missed a, missed a penalty in this game, but then Dembele and Frankie de Jong scored. Uh, Gerard Piquet uh, announced ahead of this game that he was retiring, that this would be his final match. He, he started, got subbed out, got a big ovation. Uh, going back to English pundits, uh, I saw a couple of them talking about how Gerard Piquet wasn't that good a player, overrated, this and that, which... It's just amazing their <laughs> propensity for crapping on players from other leagues just because they didn't play like the and Gerard Piquet actually played in the Premier League as a youngster. Exactly, but, but obviously, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the English had him, and you didn't recognize the value that you had, and he was given to you on a platter, and you you spat at it, and you ran him out. And he said, fine, I'm just going to go and become one of my generation's greatest center backs. By the way, a converted center back in terms of what he did in the attacking uh, field. And one of the 
true joys of my life, other than seeing him defend uh, in a masterful way, was when he got his opportunity up top. And immediately that attacking mentality and that creative type of force for a really big guy kicked in. And he had a wonderful soft touch. And it's not always easy to make that transition back there. And not only did he transition, but as I said, he became really good. And I think he he very quickly grew to appreciate and the, and value the things that he could do back there. And I mean, you know, this is this is the loss of a a generational type of player. We know in the heyday of Barcelona of what he was, part of an incredible group, obviously. But as much as we talk about the attacking prowess of that generation. Ultimately, somebody had to defend. Oftentimes, they had to defend against multiple players. Oftentimes, they had to defend in space, especially for a big guy. We talk a lot about big guys and problems that they have, and he did not miss a beat. And when it comes to possession, when it comes to the ability to go forward at different times, when it comes to leadership, man, oh, man, they uh, they broke the, the they broke the mold. So congratulations to him on an incredible uh, an incredible career. And, you know, now we're looking at uh, Bayern Munich or excuse me, Bayern Munich at Barcelona sitting at the top of the table here because their uh, their friends in white couldn't get it done. Huh, Mossy? Yeah. Real Madrid played today. They lost three two away to Rayo Vallecano. Uh, both Vinicius and Rodrigo struggled in this match. I joke with my dad. Is it too late to take him out of that Brazil squad in the World Cup <laughs> after this performance? But Benzema sat out again, which everybody now thinks is because of the World Cup, which I don't know if that rubs you the wrong way. He's missing a lot of games here, and and they and they miss him. Uh, but France know. is going to implode anyway. Come on, <laughs> you know. So yeah. it doesn't matter whether he plays or not. And then <laughs> we head to Italy, where there was a top of the table clash that we hyped up uh, on our last uh, podcast. Uh, Napoli away to Atalanta. Atalanta took a one 0 lead. Lukman from the penalty spot, but then Napoli rallied. Osimhen equalized, and Elmas, who was starting in place of Varaskelia, uh made it two one. So. Nice away win for Italy. They're now six points clear atop the table. Lazio beat Roma 1-0 in the derby. Felipe Anderson with the only goal there. And Juventus uh, with a nice 2-0 win over Inter. Rabio and Fagioli with the goals. Fagioli. Um, and uh, after this match, Massimo Allegri announced that Weston McKinney is ahead of schedule. He'll start training with the squad this week. So that's obviously great news for U.S. fans. It's great. It's great. He'll get a good week. You know, maybe... You know, some some time on the weekend and then head on that train or to that train onto that plane uh, to Doha. And hopefully he'll be raring to go because this U.S. team needs Weston McKinney. And, and by the way, Juventus needs Weston McKinney. A uh, couple more items. The draws for the various European club competitions uh, took place today. Uh, uh, the Champions League draw threw up some titanic round of 16 clashes. Bayern Munich will take on PSG which is a rematch of the 2020 final in the bubble in Lisbon. So PSG paid a heavy price for not topping their group. They get Bayern while Benfica got Club Bruges in the round of 16. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. And that's a tie that I think will really be affected by the World Cup because we'll see what Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe's headspace is, you know, after right. the World Cup. And right. So oh my you know, God, we'll yeah. see. Uh, go ahead. All right. So let's go through them and just immediately... Just pick if you had to right now. All right. So uh, where do you want to start? Well, so the other Titanic clash I wanted to highlight is Real Madrid-Liverpool, which is obviously a rematch of the 2018 and 2022 finals, both won by Real Madrid. Also, 1981 final won by Liverpool. Alan Kennedy with the winner there in Paris. Um, so a lot of history between those two clubs. So those are the two glamour ties. 
From a U.S. perspective, you also have Chelsea Dortmund, which is Pulisic against Reyna. But yeah, we can go through all of them if you want, beginning with that one. Chelsea Dortmund. Okay. All right. Chelsea Dortmund. I got Chelsea going through. What do you got? I got Chelsea as well. Okay. Real Madrid, Liverpool. I got Real Madrid. I'm really torn mm. on this one. I'm going to go yeah. Liverpool. Really? Okay, cool. That's uh, that's good. So Liverpool, all, all eggs in the UCL basket. Got it. Um, PSG, Bayern. This is really I'm gonna tough. Go, I'm going to go PSG. I'm going to go PSG as well. Okay. Uh, Leipzig City. I'm going to go City. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, AC Milan Tottenham. Interesting one. Mm. I still... Th- uh, I'm going to go Spurs. Yeah. I agree. Tottenham. Uh, Inter versus Porto. Inter. I agree. Uh, Bruges Benfica. I go with Benfica. Really? Yeah. I'll go with Bruce then. And then Eintracht, Frankfurt, Napoli. I'm on the Napoli bandwagon. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Napoli. Okay. All and, right. Cool. And I should say one delicious Europa League uh, tie, Barcelona, Manchester United. <laughs> we'll meet in the next round of the Europa League. Uh, so if Cristiano Ronaldo stays through the January window, he'll play against Barcelona again. So that'll be that's a Champions League tie occurring in the Europa League. Before we move on, uh, Mossy, because you just brought it up here, how much movement you think there is going to be in January after this World Cup? Very tricky, yeah, with the World Cup, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think a lot. Uh, I don't know. Really? I, some, you, I mean, because normally in normal circumstances, everybody kind of goes to the World Cup with the, you know the the bags of money and the contract in hand, and you know everything kind of gets done after after the World Cup. But this is obviously happening in the middle of the season for ninety nine percent of the leagues out there, and you know the January window is in and of itself is a unique type of window anyway for for those leagues. So I don't know. You, so you don't think it's it's even going to come close? You don't think there's going to be a frenzy in the way that it has been in the past? I don't, but uh, okay. I could be wrong about that. One last last thing, as long as we're talking UCL draw, the CCL draw occurred today. I don't know if you saw. Yes, I did. And uh, to bring this back full circle, LAFC and Philadelphia are both in it. The other MLS teams are Orlando, Austin, and Vancouver. Uh, the Mexican teams are Tigres, Pachuca, León, and Atlas. And there is one League MX versus MLS tie in the round of 16. Orlando will take on Tigres, so that'll be fun. And by the way, Nobody else is talking about this, but I continue to say this. If the Club World Cup ends up being in the United States, I think LAFC are going to be in it now by virtue of having won MLS Cup. It's always the six regional champions and the domestic league winner of the host nation. I have not seen any indication that it wouldn't be like that. And there continues to be strong rumblings that that tournament's going to take place in the United States. So that's something to keep an eye on, the possibility of LAFC joining Seattle in that field as well. Well, if there's a tournament that's played in the United States, you know, Fox, we're all over that. So we'll find a way to <laughs> to be doing that. Um, all right. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, oh, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Okay, welcome back, and it's time for that portion of the show we call Ask Alexi, where you send in some questions, and you can do it on the old uh, social media platforms out there. Keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi, and whether it's Twitter or Instagram or any of the places out there, uh, use that hashtag Ask Alexi, or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297, as evidently some people have called in today. Mossy, where do you want to start here? Uh, we have uh, yeah three voicemails. Let's go to the first one right now. Hey, guys. This is Luke from Atlanta. Uh, big fan of the podcast. Um, I just had a question with uh, Timo Werner now being sidelined for the World Cup for Germany. Um, over social media, especially, I've seen increasing calls for uh, Hani Mukhtar, recently named MLS MVP, to uh, get a shot at the German roster now. I don't necessarily think he merits playing time in the World Cup, given the talent they have. Um, but I did think it was an interesting question as to if he, uh, he might be uh, worthy of a roster spot. So um, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on that and uh, see what you think. Thanks. All right. Uh, thank you, Luke, from uh, Atlanta. Um, oof, how do I say this? I <laughs> I don't think that's happening, okay? Um for a number of different reasons, not the least of which I think the way, well, first off, you're talking about still, notwithstanding their, you know, their recent World Cup problems, this is still an elite team in Germany uh, and a team that absolutely uh, could go and win a World Cup that is stocked with incredible players. And most of those incredible players, as we know, play over in Europe. I would think almost all of them and many of them actually in Germany. The way that Germany views Major League Soccer uh, and this is not a, a a wrong or bad thing necessarily. I don't think that they view it as a level where they are going to tap into a German talent and not only bring them on the team, but bring them on for a player that has never been with the full national team. While while he has done uh, youth national teams for uh, for Germany, despite the fact that he has been wonderful uh, this year. And I think is a wonderful player. I think we're so far late in the game that this is not this is not going to happen. And I don't think it's necessarily even close to a, a like for the a like for like when you talk about because you mentioned Timo Werner, who obviously is hurt and not going to not going to be there. These are very very different players. And and you know, we talk a lot about the dynamic when it comes to Greg Berhalter. There's a dynamic in every single team, and I don't think that this dynamic is going to risk being pierced by somebody so new that they've never actually been with the team that's going to come that that's going to come in. Am I here for it? Yeah, I would love to see that for what it says about the player, also what it says about the league and to a certain extent what it would say about the German mentality and the German perception of what Major League Soccer is. But I just don't see that happening uh, anytime anytime soon. Mossy? I continue to say this is the next barrier for MLS to cross in terms of international credibility. I know Jim Curtin, head of MLS Cup, was talking about how this could be the best league in the world by 2026. And the day when the top countries in the world are calling up players exclusively based on their MLS form, guys who, when they arrived here, weren't considered national team caliber players, and then through their performances in MLS, won their way onto national teams like Germany, Brazil, Argentina. Right now, if you ever see one of those countries call up an MLS player, it, it's typically a guy who they already thought was a national team caliber player before he arrived, and they're sort of not holding it against him that he's in MLS. But I'd like to see one of those countries call up a guy 
where you feel like it's exclusively based on his MLS yep. form. Yep. And, you know, we, we haven't seen that yet. So, yeah, it's hard to fathom Mukhtar getting called up, but you never know. We'll see when, when they announce their squad. All right. I think we got another call. Uh, yeah, another voicemail. Hey, Alexi and Mossy, it's Alex from Carroll Stream, Illinois. Uh, question for Alex. Uh, not soccer-related question. For in Qatar, for those that are going to be traveling to the World Cup, what is the go-to traditional dish in Qatar? I'm sure a lot of people are going to be looking to eat out inside a restaurant. So if there's a signature dish in Qatar, what would you recommend? Thanks. Okay, uh, Alex from Illinois. Good question. Uh, we actually, I, I think I, I think I talked about it in the pod when Stu and I went over to uh, uh, to Qatar and we did a bunch of filming over there about different things. One of the the things that we did, one of the features that we did, was going out and actually eating um, Qatari food. And so we went to this incredible restaurant. Uh, it's called Bite Shark, and it is it, it is this gorgeous restaurant. Uh, Chef Noor. Uh, is this wonderful woman uh, who is the chef there. And she sat us down and she took us through course after course after course. And I'm probably not pronouncing these rights, but uh, there's something called mahbus, which is a staple in that it is uh, meat and rice. Very, very simple. It's all in the spices, but very, very simple. Uh, there's something called haris, which is also a staple. And it's kind of a, an oats type of thing that you put meat and different sauces and, and different uh, meats with. And it's almost like a, um, a, a mashed potato type of, uh, type of thing that they use. And then they also served us a regional fish uh, from from the area called Safi, I think it was called, which was mm, spectacular. So those are a couple of uh, different things. They also... You know, they 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 had us eat in a much more traditional way, which means eating with your hands, eating with your right hand in a much more communal type of situation. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, restaurants around that can give you a traditional uh, Iraqi type of cuisine out there. Some of them are more expensive than others uh, when it comes to it right there. But those are a couple of suggestions uh, over there. And look. I would encourage anybody that is going over there because you know, we're all going to kind of be in Doha. The more that you can get out and um, you know, explore to the extent that you can, but also get in with uh, with people and try different things. And really, you know, we are guests there. OK, we are guests and strangers in a strange land. And, you know, part of that. You know, I guess the experience of being a guest is, you know, trying to integrate yourself into the country and culture. And I think that they will bend over backwards to try to accommodate you. And what we really found, Stu and I, is that they love introducing their culture uh, and their incredible history that they have in the form of, in this in this case, we're talking about cuisine or anything else out there. So definitely take them up on it. Be proactive and find it out there because it is it is out there. And if you do get to the right places, uh, you're going to eat well and you're going to leave with a lasting memory of the people and ultimately the uh, the, uh, the culture that is uh, that is Qatar. Uh, anything else, Mossy? You know, on the topic of food. I mm -hmm. saw you snapping a picture of me munching on a sandwich at Bank of California on Saturday. I thought for sure that was going to end up on Twitter that night, but it, it hasn't yet. So it, it was just this classic, wonderful picture uh, that I have. And maybe I'll, I'll send it out there of you <laughs> because you you work very, very hard, my friend. And look, I, I know I, I tell people all the time how you are our, our secret weapon. But 
there there comes a point where even you, the robot that you are, you need to refuel, you need to relax. And this was at the end, as we said, of this epic MLS Cup game. And I'm sure you were pulled in a lot of different directions ultimately. And you saw the boxed meals that were there. You focused in on it, laser focused in on it, recognized that this was sustenance that you needed. You didn't want to talk to anybody. You didn't want to be near anybody. And you sat down and it was just a beautiful picture of this man that I love enjoying a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to seeing that. Uh, We do have uh, one more voicemail to get to. Let's do it. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Andrew from Dallas. Um, I just wanted to kind of voice my opinion. I'm, I agree with Mossy. I'm not a Zach Steffen fan either. Based off what he's done for Middlesbrough, based off what he did more of to Manchester City, not for them. With his, Everybody says he's so great with his feet, but it seems like whenever he gets put under pressure, you know, he kind of bobbles it around and isn't quite sure what to do. And if he's not great in real high-pressure scenarios, then maybe he's not the greatest candidate to go to the World Cup. I would much rather have somebody like Ethan Horvath as a third, Matt Turner as a starter, and then Sean Johnson as a second. I'm not really sure what Greg Berhalter likes so much about Stefan, and I was kind of wondering if we could get your take on what you think is so great about him, if you do, and what you think Greg Berhalter sees in him. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Love the pod. All right. Uh, Andrew from Dallas. Thank you. Uh, I think we've talked a lot about how Greg Berhalter has a soft spot for Zach Steffen. And I think, uh, to your point, Andrew, I think there's a lot of us out there that simply look at when Matt Turner came of age and came about, that he was a better shot stopper and ultimately a better goalkeeper and that he's much better with his feet than people give him credit for. So that argument about Zach Steffen's feet didn't always you know, hold water. You know, having said that, you know, I think everybody, including us, have Zach Steffen as going to the World Cup. But I will say this with this with, with this caveat, uh, barring maybe maybe there's a couple out there. I'm not sure that there's players out there that have done more to make Greg Berhalter think twice than Zach Steffen. And the perception that we have obviously, of Zach Steffen has lessened uh, in terms of the quality out there or the belief, I guess, and the confidence in him has lessened. But I also get the feeling that, you know, Greg Berhalter doesn't put his head in the sand. He sees what is going on. And seeing what Zach Steffen once was as opposed to what he is right now, it is very, very different. And a little, you know, in the back of my mind, I think of... You know, does does Greg Berhalter really believe that Zach Steffen is the guy to take him to the promised land? Is Greg Berhalter really going to risk his reputation and to a certain extent, you know, his legacy on Zach Steffen in what he is on November 7th, 2022, as opposed to what he was a year ago or two years ago? Uh, all for you know the ability to play out of the back in certain moments. And again, this goes back to something we've talked about of how much of the romantic are we ultimately going to see? And we're going to see this in the next 48 hours. I think we're going to have a real definitive type of moment where we're going to see how much of the romantic Greg Berhalter exists still and how much of the pragmatic Greg Berhalter has taken form. 
and what type of mixture it ultimately is. And I think it's going to ultimately be reflected in the 26-man roster. I think there are going to be some, some surprises. I think that they are going to be some head-scratching decisions. And who knows? Maybe for people that don't like Greg Berhalter or are critical of him, maybe he will make some decisions here that reestablish a faith and belief in Greg Berhalter. Or there may be some that say, you know what? At the most important time when you ultimately should be standing up for what you ultimately believe in, in your philosophy, in your ethos, in your identity, you betray it and you go a different direction and you become pragmatic because that's the easy thing to do. I don't know. We're going to we're going to find out. Masi, any anything uh, to say on the uh, to to Andrew regarding uh, Stefan? No, I mean, I've made my thoughts clear and he agreed with me. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I think it has to be Turner all the way. It would be preposterous in my view to start Stefan over Turner. Do you think there's any way that Stefan doesn't go? Uh, no, he'll go. But I do think Burhalter has come around to our view of it. And I expect Matt Turner to be the starter on November 21st. Sounds good. Uh, okay, well, thank you to everybody for uh, for your questions. Luke, Alex, Andrew, uh, well done uh, using that voicemail. Uh, 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297, our State of the Union podcast hotline, if you will. And we still you know, love to have the questions out there when it comes to uh, Ask Alexi. And as a matter of fact, some of the questions that you had, I'm actually going to talk about uh, when it comes to my one for the road. Speaking of my one for the road, uh, we've reached the end of the show. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I will give you my one for the road. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. All right, welcome back. It is the end of the show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Mossy, before I, I get into it here, uh, I was just... I was just so, it made me so happy. You know, we live in this world of Twitter and, you know, well, for me, Twitter hasn't necessarily changed a whole lot. I know people are talking about how much it's it's changed over the last couple of weeks with Elon Musk and all that kind of stuff. It hasn't really changed in terms of what it is for me. However, there are moments where Twitter is wonderful. And I think we saw, and not just Twitter, but social media today with, uh, you know, you talked about your Brazil team being named and, you know, obviously the social media people, they have cameras set up and it just absolutely warmed my heart to see time and time again, these players. And, you know, as I said on Twitter today, these, these videos of players receiving the news that they are going to go to a world cup, you know, I can't get enough of them. And it doesn't matter you know, how famous you are, how much money you're making, how successful you have been at whatever club it is that you play. This is the World Cup. This is something different. This is something special. And for a lot of these young men, this is the realization of a dream that they have had since they were a boy, watching the World Cup and dreaming that, who knows, maybe someday I will get to put on my country's shirt and I will get to go out. And it is a it, it it is a surreal moment when you are given you know these very very selective keys to this castle, and 
Uh, Mossy, uh, you were wonderful today in terms of sending all of these different videos out there of all of them. Was there, was there one that you liked more than others? Well, I think Pedro was the best one because not only was the joy of making the World Cup squad, but he then turned around and proposed to his girlfriend. So this was <laughs> a big know. day in his life. <laughs> Makes it you was... wonder if he hadn't gotten picked, would he still have proposed to her on this day? I mean, did it have to be like a package deal there? I don't know. Right, right. Well, speaking <laughs> well, speaking of not getting picked, uh, people, uh, a couple of people asked me in an Ask, an Ask Alexi, they asked me about my experience, and I'll go back to 1994. For those that don't uh, remember, back in 1994, the U.S. Uh, was played, or the uh, World Cup was played in the U.S. We were a team, unlike other national teams, in that we were in camp and together for basically two years leading up to the World Cup. And within those two years, you know, I was a, a, a young upstart. I had not been on the 1990 World Cup team. So I was the only thing that I cared about was being on that final roster when it came to the final. At that point, it was 22 players. That's all that I cared about. I didn't care about starting. I didn't care about playing. That was my initial goal. And that's what I wanted to do. And everything that I did every single day was geared to that moment when I knew that I was picked for that 22-man roster. We found out ultimately who was on, and maybe more importantly, who was not on, in the parking lot of a you know Laguna Beach parking lot because we were training down there in uh, in Mission Viejo and we would run on the beach and we would do different things. And we were coming down to it. Obviously, the World Cup started in June. We were coming down to the end of May. And it was final cuts. And it became very, very clear, and it was made very clear to us that the final cuts were going to be made at this certain date. And I vividly remember, this was a no news is good news type of situation. I vividly remember in that parking lot, after having run on the beach with the team, the final cuts being made. And, you know, for every person that makes a team, there is a person that doesn't make the team. And it is brutal. Great athletes, you will be, I don't know if you're surprised or not, but Great athletes are incredible at compartmentalizing. You know, great elite athletes are ruthless, okay? It doesn't mean that they can't feel. It doesn't mean that they don't have emotions. It doesn't mean that they can't have sympathy or empathy. But there is a competitive streak and a ruthless streak that makes you focus on yourself because that is ultimately what your job is and ultimately it is about survival. And this was the ultimate type of survival. Uh, my my roommate, Jeff Agus, Jeff Agus, on that day got cut. He was one of the final cuts and did not get to experience that moment that we saw play out today for your uh, Brazil players, Mossy. Instead, all of that work that he had done, basically two years leading up to what was going to be the payoff, which was playing in a World Cup, and not just a World Cup, a World Cup in your own country, that was snatched away from him. Now, Jeff Agus continued on, worked his ass off, and was part of future World Cup teams. So again, it's not the end. In that moment, you feel it's the end. And I'll never forget driving home to our apartment that I shared with him. And I was going to the World Cup, and he was not going to the World Cup. And yes, it was you know, difficult and brutal and awkward, but... The mentality of athletes is better you than me. Having said that, 
then you get to celebrate the accomplishment that you have made. And as I said, for me in that moment, I didn't know whether I was going to start. I didn't know if I was going to get on the field, but I was part of that team. And you can't start to get on the field unless you're first part of that team. And I'll never forget the feeling when I knew that I was going to be part of the World Cup team, that I was going to represent my country in the World Cup. Now, I didn't grow up in an era and in a country and in a culture where I was watching the World Cup from a really, really young age. The first World Cup that I ever watched, I was probably 16 years old, okay? Um, But it didn't mean that I didn't appreciate it and that I didn't feel just incredible feeling when that moment came. And there are players that were that are feeling it today, both on both sides, by the way, the ones that are feeling the joy and the pride and the opportunity of being given that privilege to represent their country and others that aren't going to. And they are feeling that pain and even shame, if you will, uh, although you shouldn't, but it's inevitable because they are humans. And so um, two weeks from now, they are then going to get their opportunity to possibly step on the field and live out that boyhood dream of playing in a World Cup. And I love it. I'm here for every bit of it. I know there's going to be a lot of talk about this World Cup and a lot of different takes, and that's that's all fine and well. But ultimately, this is about these players that are going to live a dream. And we get to televise it, and we get to see it, and we get to see some of these incredible stars, some of these incredibly you know, rich and adorned stars almost become children again because it's not about money. It is about their country. and It's about representing their country. And there is nothing better. Mossy, anything before we go? That's it. All right. Uh, as we said before, uh, please look for our reaction show to the U.S. men's national team roster drop, which is happening Wednesday. We will get it out immediately. Myself, David Mossy, and our good friend Stu Holden will go over all the 26 players, who's in, who's out, what Greg Berhalter did right, what he did wrong, what this means for the games coming up here in a few weeks, and you know, some perspective on this 26-man roster and how confident we can feel about them going into this World Cup and facing the likes of Wales and then England and then Iran. So don't forget to uh, check that out. Keep sending in all your uh, your uh, questions when it comes to Ask Alexi. Keep sending in all your questions when it comes to our State of the Union podcast hotline. Again, 657-549-2297. And we will talk again later on this week. And until then, and as always, size the day. 